Welcome to the number one podcast covering Michigan State basketball. The Final Four is not in the schedule. Join Rod and me, Eric, as we dive deep into the Spartans to get you prepared for every game. Subscribe today for in-depth recruiting updates and fantastic interviews with today's important college basketball personalities like Robbie Hummel. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I have listened to your guys' podcasts numerous times on drives throughout any Midwestern Big Ten city, so I, I am a big fan of your guys' work. Jay Billis. And next time, hey, if anybody in Michigan wants a December tea time, call me. You wimps won't show up, but I'll I'll be there. I'll be there and play in the cold. And Izzo will be in front of the fire with hot chocolate. Coaches Thomas Kelly. Oh, no problem. Glad to be back, man. Glad to be back. Mike Garland. You just can't sit there and trade twos for threes. You can't do it. You're going to lose. Coming down the stretch, you're going to lose. And more. You won't find better coverage of Spartan Hoops than you will get here. For both the casual and hardcore fan, come along as we take you for a green and white ride. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod here to preview the next game for Michigan State, the Butler Bulldogs of the Big East Conference. This is the swan song for the Gabbitt Games, a tournament matchup between the Big East and Big Ten that sort of existed and had teams occasionally compete against each other at completely random times. Uh, I claimed about as much media fanfare, I think, as the uh, like a Wednesday night matchup between Cal State Polytechnic and East Tennessee State. So Gabbitt Games, we hardly knew ye. Uh, if you're like me. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with that slightly, and I say this. <laughs> As someone who's been uh, a skeptic of the Gavit games, basically since it began, mostly because um, from a Michigan We're not even State sure when it began, pers- right? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good point. I can't tell you exactly. I, I want to say it's been at least six or seven years, maybe even a little longer. But if you remember, MSU didn't participate the first few go-arounds. I think it was the first two or three years MSU was out. But my my take on it was, from an MSU-centric perspective, there have been years where the Gavit game seemed like one difficult game too many for MSU. Because let's remember, MSU came into every season minimum locked into the Champions Classic and the ACC Challenge. Right. Okay, so no matter what else they did, and then you could add on top of that, sometimes a two, but more often a three-game Thanksgiving week tournament that would also present usually at least two, and again, sometimes three, difficult games to one mm-hmm. degree or another. So, And that's on top of years where they play somebody on an aircraft carrier or... <laughs> yeah. Izzo just decides to do a home and home can get somebody to agree to do a home and home. So my, my feeling was, especially when the big 10 went from 18 to 20, a couple of years ago, it, well, more than that now, but, um, it, it just felt to me like, God, this is one game too many, you know, I'd rather I'm all for the challenges, but of playing good opponents, but, you do need games where you can work on yourself. Like, to be honest, this year, the way things have unfolded, uh, and it's not that old Butler is a juggernaut, but I would rather be seeing a team that I felt Michigan State, no matter what they did, was likely to win by 20-plus. Sure. I feel like at this point, after what has happened thus far, they could use another one of those get right games where yeah, yeah. you're not worried about winning and losing. You're worried about the score, but it's not to be. And, and so we have it. Um, all that said, I think you're right 
about some of it regarding the Gavitt games, and then maybe I, I disagree with a little bit of it. You're right in that it's never captured the imagination or anything close to the way the ACC challenge did. And a big part of that, I think, is what you said, that you don't have every team from each conference because they don't have the same number of members, so you can't have everybody participating. And so that's been a problem. And then just the fact that the games get spread out over what? It's like five days, right? Well, more. I mean, I think they played middle of the season before. I feel like we played Georgetown like in January. Well, or no, that was that was a that was a different that wasn't Gavit games. That was that Gavitt. was okay, a one off. Right. That was a one off. No, but they play it. They I think the way it goes is they usually start on Monday, they end on Friday. I wanna say the Big Ten ACC Challenge is played over three days. Yeah, it was really two, but it might have gotten to three when the I think it got, got to bigger. three in the last few years when the leagues yeah. got a little bigger. I think you it used to be over two for sure. Um, that's a difference too. That it's just dragged out. You've only got a couple games each night. And you're like, okay, who cares? And then the other reality is, look, and this is no offense to the Big East. The Big East has history as a great basketball league. It is currently a great basketball league, but uh, it does not have the same kind of draw for big 10 fans, I think as the ACC does. And, and the reasons for that have to do with um, the fact that they're bigger schools, typically in the ACC, they're schools that also have football programs, which not all of the Big East has. So it's complicated. And and despite how things have been in recent years with the ACC, which uh, is amazing to me that it's fallen as much as it has as a basketball league in recent years, um, historically, the ACC and the Big Ten tended to be the two leagues at the top of the pile nationally. And there's a reason there was a Big Ten ACC challenge, and that was right. those yeah, two yeah. things were it, you know? So that's the that's where you're absolutely right. But that said, there have been some really good games in this oh, thing. Oh, sure. And if you yeah. think about it, yeah. And so certain individual matchups, I think, do have um, pull, do, do make you kind of look at when you see them pop up on the schedule and say, oh, that's a really good game. And especially because the nice thing about it is, like the Big Ten ACC Challenge, it is a home or road event. It's not neutral site stuff, mm -hmm. which I understand why that happens in November and December. There are legitimate reasons for it. And if my choices as a fan are, do I get to see good teams play each other, but it has to be a neutral site, or do I not get to see good teams play against each other because they refuse to play home and home and, and they can't play at a neutral site? I'll take the former. You know, I want the matchups, first of all, but there is something different and interesting about home and road matchups. It was the same way in the in the Big Ten ACC challenge. So yeah. this one, maybe not. I mean, I try to think about it. What were the big time games MSU played in in this event? I would say the year in, in 2019 where they went to Seton Hall to play them okay, and right. won a, mm -hmm. in a very, very That's close game. That call that coming out party there. That yeah. One, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a freshman. Yep. It was, and it was Cassius Winston senior year. And 
you know, uh, Cash was struggling for obvious reasons at the time, but he came around and made some big plays at the end. Um, you know, that was a good game. Um, last year's game against Villanova, unfortunately, got to be at least interesting. MSU controlled it most of the way, but, you know, Villanova's a big name, so even though they weren't a great team by their standards, that one had a little bit of juice. Um, not too many others for MSU. I mean, when I try to think about that event, and and think about who the hell they've played. That's the only <laughs> time I think they drew Villanova. UConn wasn't in the Big East for most of the events run, I don't think. So they've never played UConn in it. Um, God, I just don't know. I mean, the, they haven't played Georgetown in it. Um, you know, and that Pro, they haven't played Providence. I mean, MSU just hasn't played a lot of games in this thing. So goodbye. Gabbit games, we hardly knew ye. I <laughs> guess is the. <laughs> I I think you know it, the one thing I'd say is well, a couple things. So one is you know the Big East is not doesn't have the cachet that an ACC for the points you mentioned. You know they're not football schools. I I think that's fair, and that's not but, a and, knock on the Big East. It's a no, great it's just just a reality but, of what it is, right? And there aren't as yeah. many basketball fans as there are football fans in general. You know who watch watching well, college this, sports. And, and this brings up just a quick aside. Um, some, some listeners may have seen, there's a, there's a writer who's New York based named Adam Zagoria. Uh, he goes by Zags, which is the first sign of the kind of person that he is. Um, <laughs> but he's been banging the drum the last couple of days on why UConn doesn't replace Michigan state in the champions classic. And as people have tried, first of all, we can debate. There's a debate. His point is they've won five national titles. Uh, I can counter with some stuff if we really want to go there, but that's, that's all subjective. You can have that disagreement, but as I've seen a few people point out to him in his mentions, um, the event is a t made for TV event, by the way, the creation yeah. of Mark Hollis, the AD at Michigan state at the time. So start with that. Um, but, but the thing you gotta, that he, and I don't know whether he's, willfully um ignorant of this or or actually ignorant but <laughs> the idea behind that event is you wanted to have teams from the four major conferences and i'm sorry the big east and the pack whatever get left out of that discussion for good reason you know why money and it's related to ratings eyeballs that's what it's that's what it's about. So, yeah. look, if somebody wanted to bitch about not being included in that event, I could think of two schools right away who have a better case than UConn certainly does, North Carolina and UCLA. Okay? Why are they not in it? There's already an ACC team in it. That's why Carolina's out. And the Pac-12 doesn't mean anything in terms of viewership. That's why What's UCLA didn't get I don't know what that right. is anymore. Well, the former Pac-12. <laughs> yeah, right. That, but that's why. Yeah. Pretty simple, but I guess it gets past some people. So anyway, sorry, yeah. I digress. I, well, no, that's okay. Make and the I, point. That's <laughs> the the other point was just that the the fan bases and the amount of eyeballs that follow those schools are much smaller. There's much smaller schools than the Big Ten that's and ACC it. schools, right? I mean that. I mean that that's just reality as well. And so that's you can, one part of less it. ratings. That's one part and of it. I, the only thing I can say is, from a marketing standpoint, this has been a mismarketed tournament. Like you could have yes. it over five game five days, and that'd be fine. But you have to say it's the Big East versus Big Ten Gavit games. 
and we're going to, you know, the, this is where the tally is. It's zero because there's always that thing. There was, you know, the two conferences are playing each other sort of in a way, right? Uh, you know, they kind of do that with bull, bull games even now. You know, the, what are the, what's your conference record in the bull game? They never, they've never done that with the marketing with the Gabbit games. Maybe that's because they don't have a, uh, I'm not sure if they're, what the TV arrangement is, if it's like all ESPN or all on Fox. No, it's I'm all Fox. Even. It's so all Fox. So it's, it's been a mistake by Fox then to not really push that sort of aspect of it. Like and would, now, of course, it doesn't matter because it's over. And that, I think that has, that's why you're just playing these teams. You're like, oh, I guess that's part of the Gavit games, right? Whereas if you see Georgia Tech in your schedule, well, you know, that's part of the ACC challenge, right? I mean, those, right. those are the, that's the, I think a, the, one of the biggest problems with this tournament. I think, I think that, um, I am loath to give credit to ESPN for anything, but um, <laughs> one thing that's definitely true is ESPN is way ahead of Fox in terms of branding this stuff, Yeah, you know, cause they kind of invented it and sure. you know, Fox is trying like they've, they've really worked overtime in college football to brand the big noon game mm -hmm. in the big 10, you know, that's, so they're they're starting to do those things, but I think you're absolutely right. And the other thing is, it's named after Dave Gavitt. Well, Dave Gavitt is an important historical figure in college basketball. He was a longtime coach at Providence, very successful. Irvin Johnson and company beat him in the NCAA tournament, Magic's freshman year, by the way. But <laughs> um, he was he was a longtime successful coach, but he was really known as the guy who was the driving force behind the creation of the big East shortly after he retired. I think it might've been his last year, the year that MSU took him out. Um, but he became the commissioner of the big East. It was a driving force behind that league. That's all great, but that's got nothing to do with the big 10. I don't know no. why the big 10 is part of the Gavit games. I mean, that's just a, why? Okay. It's named after a guy who was a commissioner of one of the <laughs> leagues. Yeah. Oh, Okay. I mean, yeah, no, I know everything about it doesn't make any sense. And it never is the, has is big 10 supposed to be the Washington generals in this thing. Come on <laughs> the, the hell out. Um, the other thing about the TV thing, just to go back to that, you were talking about those being smaller schools and that's absolutely true. The big East, the core of the big East, almost all of the member schools are Catholic universities. Mm -hmm. um, and so they tend to be there. Well, they're clearly, they're all private schools. They tend to be much smaller in enrollment. We're talking about a lot of schools that maybe are in, you know, the high four figures, low five figures in terms of enrollment. Whereas the Big Ten, you're talking about schools with 40, 50,000 students. Yeah, right. Big difference. But also the fan bases. If you've spent any time in the Northeast, you know this outside of a very few pockets, college athletics in general is very much a poor relation to the pros. Sure. It just is. Now it's not as stark as it is in some ways on the West coast, in my opinion, but it definitely, all you got to do, take a look at any of the New York city papers in the winter and see where college basketball falls. Now there have been periods where there was an exception to that, you know, in years when St. John's in the past was good. I think if Patino gets them going, St. John's will be big news there. You know, so there have been sporadic periods where that wasn't the case. You know, UConn has a pretty good fan base, although even that not on a big 10 level. And guess what? Zags. That's why your boys aren't part of the champions classic. There it is.
Hate to tell you the truth, but that's it. Michigan <laughs> State's fan base is massive by comparison. Right. And and the, I mean that's the lure of college and that's the lure of college athletics, right? Because it is your uh, is your alma mater, it is your relationship to the school and if your school is small, yeah. there're just less people with that relationship because it's not like it's a higher quality of play than professional sports. So the the lure is right. the college aspect of it. The and the other thing is you know, because it's such a big deal in this part of the country and anybody who lives in the state of Michigan listening to this knows this reality with the, the other school and state, you get a lot of fellow travelers who um, have no connection to the school other than they like the football helmet. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and that does not exist in the same way. There's an old line. I don't know if it's quite applicable anymore. But the biggest college sport fan base in New York, arguably for a long time, and again, might still be the case, I don't know, was Notre Dame because of the sure. football program. Yeah. They used there was a term for it. They called them subway alums. <laughs> so I mean, really, that's the, yeah. that's an actual uh term of art, so to speak, that was applied <laughs> to that. So you don't have St. John's does not pick up a lot of fans who don't have an affiliation to the school. So when you see Okay, and living alumni is whatever it is, significantly smaller than any Big Ten school. That's that's a real number, whereas the majority of Big Ten schools have fan bases that far outstrip the number of alums, because you got so many fellow travelers. You know, anybody who grows up in the state of Indiana probably roots for either Indiana or Purdue basketball if yep. they're interested in sports at all. That's not true of somebody who's interested in sports and is living in Massachusetts. Yeah. They don't necessarily have a college program they give a shit about. We actually, and we have an example of that in the Big Ten, even, which is Northwestern, where you have the city of Chicago largely yep. doesn't, I shouldn't say they don't care about Northwestern, but it's a smaller school. Its alumni base is much smaller than the other schools in the Big Ten. And yeah. it shows, I mean, even their home games, they have there trouble keeping other visiting right. fans there. And it's, again, no knock against Northwestern, just the reality. The only other school that probably is roughly similar, although it's bigger because their alum base is bigger, would be Rutgers. Sure. Yep. Right? Again, yep. not a coincidence. Rutgers is in the Out Big East. East footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just not It's not the same thing. So, anyway, that's the we, Gavit games. But we got a game to play. <laughs> we got a game to play. Uh, so uh, if you're like me and feel occasional pangs of guilt for consuming media for free while driving around your car running the treadmill, then consider financially supporting the show. For just a few bucks a month, you can be a part of the community on Patreon or Substack. We also accept support via Venmo or PayPal if you prefer. It's super helpful to the show. Uh, find out how and get the links at tffinots.com slash support. Okay, Rod, let's discuss the game uh, get Friday against Butler in East Lansing. This is the second matchup against Butler that Michigan State's had recently. And both have been at home kind of strangely because they're just no like not weird. true not true oh, no, they, they went they went to that's Angle right they played years yeah, ago but it's weird that they're playing the same team back to back is what i meant to say because mm, no last year they played Notre. uh no last year they played villanova i meant it was it, butler yeah. it was butler nova butler right it's yeah it's it's i guess weird that they're playing butler twice though out of three which is that's you true. know they don't right that's what that's i meant true. more than yeah. yeah you're right it's not back to back because it was villanova last year although it is weird they're playing at home twice two years in a row in the gavit games but yeah whatever yeah you know. um, again that's the nature of this it's, it's kind of the, a whatever a weird, kind of event it's a, you know? it's a whatever event exactly yeah uh and 
and you know, Michigan State fans are you know, Michigan State's coming in one and two with the loss at George uh, to James Madison, and then the loss to Duke. Uh, obviously, beat Southern Indiana in between, and so I think there's a shakiness feeling some of the fan bases that have not been around long or get you know they expected a lot more from this team. No, so. they don't have that excuse. I don't give them that excuse. We're not talking about a bunch of 14-year-olds. No. <laughs> Call it what it is. And look, is there a guarantee in life that if Michigan State gets off to a, a shaky start that they automatically are there's a god-given right for them to recover and make it all fine in the end? No. No. Yeah. But 25 years of history ought to tell you that that outcome to one extent or another is likelier than the other outcome, which is we're not going to make the tournament, which is, you know, at this point, come on. Yeah. There might come a time to have those discussions. They're not here yet. We're in, we're in the middle of November still. Um, No, I don't give them the, the, uh, the out card on that. What I always was refer to it. I've got a line for it. No learning ever. (laughs) These people, they, you can talk about Michigan state every year, even when it's the same guys coming back, developing collective amnesia, how to play defense together and, you know, all the, and I get that that's frustrating, but there's just as much, if not more of a sense of collective amnesia in unfortunately too large a portion of the fan base that they see something like we've seen over the last you know week, 10 days, and act as if they've never seen this before, and it's a horror. You've seen it constantly. It's the norm. We talked about that, right? That there are these few exceptional years where MSU really had all their shit together early. 2000-2001 is the most striking example of it. But I listen, do people forget that the team that went to the national title game in 2009 and won the Big Ten, that team got run off the court in November by North Carolina at Ford Field. They, they got run off the court twice by North Carolina at Ford Field, but once came in November. And I remember it. I remember so oh, there's all this buildup and hype around this team. Da, 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 da. I could cite tons. I'd go back to the team that was preseason ranked number one, the 2019-2020 MSU team. They got really outclassed by Kentucky at Champions Classic. Then they went out to Maui and lost the opener to Virginia Tech. You remember that? Yeah. Number one to unranked. So there's precedent for it. You've seen this before. That team, by the end of the year, was I think considered by most people to be at least a slight favorite to win the whole thing. We'll never know whether they would have done it or not, but that's where they were by March. So there is precedent lots. And I've just scratched the surface with those two references. I can go chapter and verse. There are tons of them. That is not to say that you excuse what's happened thus far. I think I, I'm going to toot our horn here. I think our coverage and responses to these three games, I think we've been very critical and very honest and very, very even-handed, which means there's been a lot of negative talk about their performance. But at the same time, if you watch the Duke game and you did not see some positives there, I, I think you're coming in with a bias toward a negative, a negative outlook. Because there were things, as we discussed, that were absolutely positive. Now, 
They've got to sustain those and they've got to build on them. And those things aren't given either. You got to actually do it. But I felt better after that Duke loss than I have uh, at any point since they started playing the exhibition games. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, you know, medicine, we have the, the phrase, you know, uh, once is a, once is an anecdote, twice is a coincidence and three times is a trend. Well, here we have 25 times. <laughs> it's a trend. Right. <laughs> and so I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, you have history on your side and of course no one can predict the future, but certainly you have historical reasons to feel less ill at ease than you, than you have. So at, this is at this, the very, at the very least, yes. there's not a reason to panic. And, and I understand the reasons why people are particularly tightly wound this year, but it's also not the first time and not the 10th time that I've seen these kind of reactions to this <laughs> stuff. I've seen it every time. And yeah. that's why I say my line is no learning ever. Yeah. Because you can, you can beat people over the head with this over and over and over again, that November losses do not mean anything in terms of predictive uh, effect as to what the season is going to look like. They do not mean anything, yes. but you can't, con people forget this every year. And I know football's exacerbated this stuff, but that really in a fundamental sense has nothing to do with what's going on on the hardwood. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't. Except make people a little bit more emotional because not only is Michigan state's but the, football that's program, right. the dumpster, you know, a dumpster fire, but also Michigan's is doing so well. Right. I mean, the, but if you're going to be, aligned. if you're going to be, if you're going to be that, then, you know, you're, you're surrendering your, your rational faculties and God help you if you're that fragile, you know, but right. I mean, well, that's my take. But <laughs> I, but I do think, I do think, I do think this, there's one more thing I want to say on this and we move on to Butler. Great. Um, I think that there, there are a, a handful of people out there who have gone too far in the other direction. And I think have this notion that Tom Izzo almost kind of wants to lose these games. Yeah that's, not, yeah. that's not true at all. Tom Izzo wants, there, there used to be this debate over the big 10 tournament. Oh, right, Izzo yeah, doesn't yeah. really care about it. Yeah. Okay. That can't, that's absolutely false. He wants to win every game he's ever coached. I'm positive of it. But any coach would, I don't mm -hmm. think there's any coach out there unless you're Brad Underwood. Who says honestly? Well, we wanted to lose this one, because, you know. But, but, um, but here's the thing. So it doesn't go that far. But the thing is, Tom Izzo has always understood that, as much as he says, "I want to hang banners, I want to win championships," and he does, and that applies to the Big Ten. But he has always understood that in this sport, ultimately you are judged by what happens in March. Yep. You can, you can wail about it, that it shouldn't be so. And no, the big 10 still means something and all that. And it does, but I, I'm not saying anything that anyone who pays attention to this stuff shouldn't realize immediately the way you are evaluated in this sport is based on what you do in March. Matt Painter has done a fantastic job as a regular season coach. Fantastic. I do not believe he is viewed as an elite coach. Why? He's viewed as a very good one, not an elite coach. 
Why is that the case? Because he hasn't done it in March. Yep. You know, that's the truth. And I think, again, if you look over the course of Tom Mizzo's tenure, it is true. I'm going to say at least 80, 75, 80% of the time, his teams are generally playing their best basketball at the end of the year. That's Mm -hmm. been true even of the last three years, which have been so disappointing to people, apparently. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's been true. Now, those teams weren't Final Four good, so their best wasn't good enough to get them there. But there's no argument that I would consider reasonable that they weren't at their best over the course of the season at the end. No matter what you think, that is not true for the majority of college basketball. There's a... There's a good argument. I could point to a lot of teams, teams that people talk about, teams that win things occasionally, who are more often at their best in November and December than they are in March. That is a that is a truth. So what I think he cares about, it's not about, well, I want to lose these games. Of course he doesn't. But when you look at the way he is always scheduled, he knows because he's sane That when you schedule the way he does, there's a reasonable chance you're going to lose some of these games because the opposition is consistently good. So you're going to get got somewhere along the line, right? Sure. And maybe two or three times along the line. A guy who schedules that way over and over and over does it for two reasons. One, he's not afraid of taking a loss. So we're not talking about Jim Boeheim, where he's scheduling every game at home and playing the Sisters of the Poor. He's scheduling real teams, sometimes on the road, a lot of times at neutral floors, where he can legitimately have a good chance of losing. And he schedules these games because they give his program a level check. You go through games against these kind of opponents, you find out where you're at. And that's, that's necessary. If you go into conference play and you haven't played anybody or you've played one difficult team, how do you how do you really know what you are? And by the time you get into conference play and start discovering, oh, we're not as good as we thought we were, it might be it might be too late. Yeah. Michigan State usually knows in November what they need to improve upon. Mm-hmm. And and that is part of the the formula. It's not about, well, we want to take a loss. It's that we're not afraid to take a loss in order to learn what we need to learn about ourselves. Yep. I, I think that's my opinion. I'm not stating that as fact, but that's my opinion. It's based on watching this for his entire tenure. And I absolutely believe it to my core that it's true. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems to be working. And I think, you know, the other thing about that too, is you can be a coach and you can know what the problems are and you can tell the players what the problem is, but until they experience adversity from the problem, they may not yep. work to actually correct it, right? And so that's what those sort of challenges, you know, <laughs> oh, right? You have to have go through those. It doesn't mean you want to lose. I'm sure he'd rather have beaten James Madison by a point and still be able to get the, you know, the coaching aspect of what he needed out of that game. Uh, but, you know, it, like you said, there's a risk to playing games like that that puts you, that ex- potentially expose your weaknesses and your problems. There's the, the old line about, well, it's obviously optimal to learn lessons while still winning. And of course, everybody would agree with that. But my response is, do you learn all the lessons you need to learn by winning? 
If you're a great team, if you're a truly great dominant team, like Indiana in 76 or, you know, a couple of those early 90s Vegas teams, you know, somebody somebody like that, okay, maybe you're good enough that you can learn the less all the lessons you need to learn and and not need to take a loss or not many of them to get there. Most teams, I don't think that's the case. I, you know, I remind you, the the national championship team last year that that Adam Zagoria thinks is is God's gift to basketball. Um, they win the Big didn't East. Didn't win right? their league. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't win their league. Yeah, they didn't win the Big East. So Marquette did. So, you know, that's that's not uncommon. Teams that win national titles oftentimes. They've gone through some adversity. So, uh, and again, that's not to excuse any of this. I think we've been pretty forthright about the problems and will continue to be. But you got to take a little broader view to really understand what all this should mean at this stage. You know, that's my two cents at least. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's great philosophy just for life in general because – uh, we often learn best when something when we fail. Yeah, th- that's and, what I was going to say. Right? It's, yeah, it's I mean psychology, right? Yeah. How, I in mean, your it's... daily life, if you think about the anybody listening to this, if you think about the course of your life, um, were you able to learn all the things you needed to learn just by having things go along swimmingly? Probably just by, not. Or even just by scraping by, you're like, oh, I guess I don't need to. You know, you don't. It yeah. does not sink in as much as if when you fail and like something actually you have a problem. So yeah, you pay no a question. price and you learn something from it. So yeah. that's and again, it's not that he's setting them up to have to go through that, but he is willing to risk it because I think his view is, you know what? If we win a game in November against a great team, great. It means we're probably pretty good at that stage and it's an impressive win. It helps us, blah, blah, blah. But if we lose, that's okay too, because we're going to learn something from it. That's where I think his philosophy is. Not this, I want to take a loss, but more, I'm okay taking a loss because I think we can make use of that, which might actually benefit us as much or even more than winning down the road. He's not afraid of it. And that's why college basketball was a superior product to college football, by the way, is yes, you can have, allowed to have coaches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have, they, they don't have to worry about, well, what is this loss? What does this one loss or two losses mean to me? Yeah. Does it eliminate us from anything? No, it doesn't. Well, how about we talk about Butler? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, Butler's coached by Thad Mata as many fa- listeners remember he used to be the head coach at the Ohio State University uh, he's in his second year now back at school uh, where he started uh, before he went to Xavier and then it was Ohio State they're having good season so far the three no uh, three blowouts over some mid-majors to begin the season four Butler stars are transferred this year as a, a story that we seem to repeat many times now in these previews uh, the f- fifth transferred in before last season and uh, largely out of necessity really He's gone to the portal era and he's kind of all in as a lot of these teams, especially when you're in a, a more competitive league, like the big East, you really don't have time to fart around too much, which I think that's one of the problems that Minnesota has been facing. Um, uh, he, he wasn't left with much either when he started. So he had Lavelle Jordan was a previous coach and they were not very good under him. So last year they were 14, 18, six and 14, not very good. Uh, so there's plenty of opportunities to be better this season. Uh, 
not expected to be super good, but at least off to a promising start to begin with. Uh, they're doing a good job generally taking care of the ball, shooting inside the arc. They don't, they've been struggling a little bit from three, but you know, not as much as Michigan State. Uh, they aren't rebounding offensively, and defensively they've been very good, uh, which I think always the Thad Mata teams always were at Ohio State. These are, that are a yeah. call. Yep. Um, yep. Little bit problems rebounding defensively as well. They generate some turnovers, limit opponents from threes and twos at pretty good clip. Of course, you know, the competition has not been super high level. So this is going to be their first real level check too. Uh, and, and obviously not Michigan States. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. Um, we don't really know yet what to make of, um, of Butler's performance because they haven't played anybody now to their credit. When you play teams like they've played, you want to smack them and they've smacked them. Yeah. So that's good. But yeah, you generally have seen them, you know, down at the bottom of Big East preseason projections. And that's that's reasonable because they didn't return much at all in the way of proven production. And the transfers they've added, I think six of the ten are transfers in their rotation. I think I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, if definitely four of the five starters are. Yeah. But other than maybe Posh Alexander, who we'll talk about in a second, none of them were big portal names. I mean, we're going to talk about one that our listeners should know, Pierre Brooks. Right. You know, Pierre Brooks is starting for them. Pierre Brooks transferred because he wasn't going to be in Michigan State's rotation. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That doesn't mean that he can't make that decision look bad, but that tells you why they were projected to finish where they, where they were. Right. And at least the perception of the guys they've added. Now, I think he's done some interesting, look, Thad Mata to me, it's, it's a dead heat between Thad Mata and Bo Ryan as to who I think is the second best coach in the big 10 over Izzo's tenure. Dead heat. I think, um, Bo Ryan had more consistency. Mm-hmm. Thad Mata slumped at the very end of his tenure, and a lot of that was due to health issues. Yeah, um, I think he lost he lost some uh, perspective on how he built his teams for most of his tenure. So he was still getting highly rated recruiting classes, but if you remember those teams, the last couple of years he was there. They were very disjointed. He was recruiting nationally as opposed to Midwestern kids, which had really built. Yeah, he just, he shared a lot of the same values in a basketball sense. And I think in terms of the, where he recruited the types of kids he recruited with Izzo, I, you know, I, I can think of that too. I don't think there was a better rival that Michigan state has had in the league over the Izzo tenure than Ohio state for, you know, about an eight year period. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were those games. Some of those games. I remember that, that 2011, 2012 season, Draymond green, senior year, they played three times. Every one of them was an absolute war and they were great games. MSU won two of them. Uh, And there were a lot of those over the years. So, I'm a fan of Thad Mata's. I think he's, I think he's a very, very, very good coach. Um, I think he he did things the right way. I always sensed there was a lot of mutual respect 
between he and Izzo. And so I'm rooting. And, and you hate to see anybody. He was really very young. I mean, when that for a coach, when his back problems kind of, you know, forced his firing resignation, whatever they ultimately called it at Ohio State. I want to say he was only like 53. Yeah, he yeah. 54. He wasn't old. He's still not that old. He could still have another decade easy in him. Mm-hmm. Um, no problem. But you hate to see that happen to somebody. And it was a it was a complicated story. It had to do with a botched back surgery, I think, was what it was. I know his, pro- his health problem was with his back, and I think it was actually a surgery for his back that is where it really went wrong. And I just I'm glad that he feels well enough to be back in it. And we'll Absolutely. see what he can do at Butler. He's the guy who really is responsible for elevating the Butler program. He was, and that's not to say they'd had no success or tradition before him, but he's the one who kind of put them on the map. And then you saw other guys after he left to go to Xavier kind of take that baton and keep them up there. And it culminated, you know, Brad Stevens obviously had them at the highest level the program's ever achieved. Yeah. Uh, they went backward with Lavelle Jordan. Um, and so Mata has come back to try to restore it. And I think they're going to have more patience with him than they would have with a lot of other people for obvious reasons. They should. Uh, but I think as long as he's healthy, I expect that eventually he's going to get that thing back on track and they'll be competitive in that league. There's every reason to think he will. So, uh, well, let's, let's go through the players and talk to you about the stars and the lineup is brought to you by the brothers of just two gutters. If you're looking for gutter work or someone to take care of the problems you've got in your gutter. Maybe you have a leaf problem. Maybe you have like me and you have a tree growing in your gutter, whatever the problem might be. <laughs> the brothers suggest two gutters are the ones to take care of it. They specialize in just doing gutters. They don't do anything else. So they're very good at what they do. They can come in in any type of weather outside of thunderstorm. They'll get up there and take care of the, of whatever your problem is. If you just need it cleaned out, if you need leaf guards put on, if you need them repaired, if you need them replaced, whatever it is, residential commercial, they will do it. Uh, they do fantastic work, fully insured. I can't recommend them enough. It's something we don't think about too much, but it's sort of like a zipper. You don't notice it until it's not working, and then you've got a real problem. So make sure you take care of your gutters. Uh, you can find them at brothersgutters.com. 10% off if you mention Final Four when you an estimate. You can go contact Kurt at in the Grand Rapids area, or you can contact Greg in the Metro Detroit area. Uh, they will set you up and take care of you. And in a little bit, Rod will tell us who Michigan State's player they need to keep in the gutter on Butler is. So we'll begin with the starters. First is Pasha Alexander, six-foot transfer from St. John's. And as you mentioned, we got a lot of transfers. Uh, he averaged 13.7 points a game on 54, 40, and 100 shooting so far, averaging 4.7 assists per game with a better than 2-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio and a little over two steals a game. So uh, he's definitely a guy you got to watch out for. He's the pick. For the guy to keep in the gutter. He's the guy. He's the guy. Um, he's leading that. He's tied for the lead in scoring. He's their point guard. He's he's the guy on their roster who's played the most high-level basketball. Pierre Brooks obviously was also in a high-level program, but he didn't play the same. Pasha Alexander was a starter in the Big East, you know? So right. um, the the one thing about him, I, he's got he's a key for them, obviously, and he's got to be good. For them to be good 
But uh, and and Thad Mata teams, when you think about his teams at Ohio State, he had a lot of teams that had very high level point guard play. If you think about guys like oh Mike Conley, Aaron Kraft, Shannon Scott, they had a lot of guys who were very good. And I felt like at the end, part of the reason it fell off is he was never able to find that point guard who could play at the level his previous guys did. So again, another parallel to Izzo. His good teams typically had very good point guard play. So Pasha Alexander needs to do that for Butler. The one thing I would say, I am skeptical of that 40% three-point shooting. For starters, he's only averaging a little over three attempts per game. So he's four for 10, which is a decent Mm -hmm. amount, but it's not a boatload. Um, Yeah. He's never shot over 30% from three on his career. So I'm a little bit skeptical that he's all of a sudden become a 40% plus guy that can happen, but it's rare. You you don't expect it. So, um, remains to be seen, but even if he's not hitting the jumper, he's very quick experienced. He can create havoc. And so he's a guy, Michigan state's definitely going to have to load up on. And that's the player they're going to try and keep in the gutter. Brought to you by the brothers at Just Two Gutters. So next is DJ Davis, six foot one transfer from UC Irvine. He averaged thirteen point seven points a game on 55, 42, and one hundred shooting, uh, and he averaged fifteen points a game at Irvine and has been a forty percent plus guy from three in the in his past. Yeah. So as opposed to Alexander, although he's only taken two more attempts from three than Posh has, I think Davis the three-point shooting is probably a little more sustainable at the level he's at because he's done it before. He's multiple seasons above 40%. Um, you know, look, they brought him in because he was a good scorer at Cal Irvine. Um, not a not a great league, not a great level of play. So you don't always know how it's going to go when you – we talk about this all the time – when you step up in class as a transfer, how much is going to translate? Uh, but I think the early returns are good, and they're going to need him to provide that scoring punch for sure. Because they outside of outside of Alexander, they don't have a lot of other proven scoring on this team. You know, they've got guys that have done okay thus far, but not a lot of proven high level scorers. Next is six foot six junior transfer Pierre Brooks, who transferred in from Michigan State. Pierre is averaging 13.3 points a game, four rebounds a game, shooting 44, 29, and 71. Well, that sounds a little familiar. Uh, and uh, he is he's definitely a starter playing the wing, averaging a little over 25 minutes a game. So clearly Mata is trusting him at this point to um, both on both ends of the court. Yeah, I was when I was doing the preview for this, I was thanking God because I hadn't followed it enough to know I was thanking God that Pierre Brooks was not shooting 45% from three (laughs) because the carping from the MSU fan base would have been mad. Well, that's probably how you know it wasn't, it wasn't (laughs) shooting 45% (laughs) right? because if he was, you're right. You'd have had people squawking about it. Um, look, I like Pierre. And I was a big fan, as listeners to this podcast know, of him coming out of high school. I thought he had potential to become something of a Denzel Valentine type player in that I saw 
the potential for a lot of versatility. I, I thought he could shoot. I thought he was a good passer. And I thought he had a body and a mindset that should allow him to be a good rebounder. So I really, but the question coming in was going to be how quickly did he pick it up defensively? And the answer was he never did. Yeah. And then he made matters worse as last season went along. He got in worse condition, not better. Um, I have seen footage of him clips of him at Butler. It does not look to me like he is in, um, anything more than marginally different shape yeah. right now. he does, He's playing 25 minutes, but that doesn't mean they're 25 good minutes. He's scoring because he's apparently got a green light to shoot. And I get that. They need scoring. So that's why I'm sure that's why Thad took a flyer on him. And he's going to give him every chance to be that third scorer that they need. Um, I, I'm going to be very interested to see what he looks like defensively again against poor opposition. Butler has defended very well as a team thus far. I want to see what he looks like individually. And we'll return back to that when we get to the keys, right. but everybody knows what I'm, I think what I'm alluding to fourth starter, the three point shooting has to be disappointing. Yeah. Well, 29 is not any different than at Michigan state. I mean, he was well, right. I mean, he was around well, there his first bit. season. He showed better potential than that last year. He got off to a good start and then really fell off. And yeah. And, and some of that you could write off to, okay, he was playing sporadically. So you get how every time he does get some minutes, he's feeling a lot of pressure to make something happen. And it just kind of spirals and, and, uh, snowballs on itself, yeah. right? Uh, in terms of a lack of confidence. So you can write that off, but at, at Butler, it sure looks to me like he's got the green light and you know, he's not thus far three games, very short sample size, small sample size, I should say. Um, he is not looking any better as a shooter, which is weird because he's capable of being a very good shooter that, that I know that's not a guess, right? Jamil Telford is a 6'7", 225-pound transfer from Northeastern, averaging 11.3 points a game and four rebounds a game, shooting 39, 17, and 90. He was a good scorer at Northeastern with double-digit score all three seasons. So I imagine he played with Tyson Walker. Uh, One year. Yeah. Yep. So he, he uh, brush, so he's kind of year. like, along with Brooks, they're probably sort of switch off at playing three of the four uh, offensive and defensively. Yeah. And that's where not having seen them play yet, I don't, I don't know the answer if, but I, but I know this, if, if Pierre Brooks has got to play the wing and frankly with their roster composition, I think it's almost inevitable that he'll see at least some wing minutes. I don't have any idea who he guards. Yeah. If he's at the four, he's got a better chance. But at the three, I just thought this, and they might do that. This kid might be better, better built to do, but you know, again, this kid six, seven, is he going to be a good defensive matchup against Jaden Akins to start the game? I, <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. That's kind of the problem I see for Butler. But to me, these two players look like they could be more or less interchangeable at the three and the four, but defensive reasons might necessitate playing Pierre more at the four, at least on defense. And finally, for uh, starters, Jalen Thomas, 6'9", senior, played at UD High in Detroit. 
he's the one who's the only returner, uh, returning player, although he transferred in the year before from Georgia State. He had trouble with injuries, averaged seven points and 4.7 rebounds a game. This year, he's averaging a little less, 5.3 points and more rebounds at 7.3 rebounds a game in three games. Yeah, and I think, I can't remember for certain if he played if he played a year with Cassius Winston, if he was on that U of D state championship team as a freshman, okay. I can't remember for sure, but he had a, but he had a good career, you know, typical of young big guys who aren't the rare superstar types. It took him a while, but by the end of his time at U of D, he had become, you know, a D one prospect and he did some time at Georgia state ended up transferring to Butler. Um, you know, he's, He's sharing that position basically, but he's playing his roles expanded, I think a little bit. Um, and I, I think what he gives them is some stability in the paint. He's not, you don't have to worry about, you know, Filipowski type stuff <laughs> from Jalen Thomas. He's going to be around the basket. He's what we call and a regular so five he's part of. Yeah, exactly. But he's part of what you're going to see that they start a small lineup, but they've got a ton of size off their bench. Yeah, we'll go it's in their rotation. Yeah, it's amazing. So he's part of that. They're, they really, they can bring some legit size. And we'll begin with that. Talking about the reserves. We'll start with Connor Turnbull, 6'10 sophomore, averaging 7.3 points a game and 3.3 rebounds a game in about 18 minutes. So he plays about the same or even a little bit more than uh, Thomas we were just talking about. He's shooting 62, 38, and 100. I mean, although he's only made one of uh, one three a game. And so uh, he's obviously going to give him a lot of uh, ability to stretch a little bit at the five spot over Tom, what Thomas I brings. think he'll probably he'll probably play more at the four because he's got that stretch ability. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and they have another option, another couple options, uh, actually, at the five. So they can, even though they're starting a smaller lineup, they have the – they will – almost certainly get big but you see why i'm saying when you've got that kind of roster composition it's hard to imagine that pierre brooks doesn't at least have some stints on the floor where he's got a guard of three now maybe they'll figure they'll try to match him up with msu when cohen carr is in the game Oof. or maybe trey holloman you know and and think that they're going to get away with it maybe they will but if he's if he's got a guard Jaden akins uh-uh. <laughs> that's not going to go well for them. So I think that's, you know, for Butler, that's, it's great that you've got all that size, but you might also have some matchup. And also we'll have to see how a guy that big could match up with um, Malik. Hall right. Absolutely. He's got to play both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll move on from six ten to seven foot one transfer from Bucknell, Andre screen. He's averaging seven points a game, five rebounds a game, and a little over three blocks a game, uh, shooting 100% from the floor. <laughs> I imagine a lot of dunks. And 71% from the line in 12 minutes a game. 12 minutes a game, and he's averaging more than three blocks per. <laughs> now, again, they're playing bad opposition. Right. But this is a guy who had a really nice career at Bucknell. And that's usually a pretty good and program. blocked a lot. Yeah. Blocked a lot of shots there. In fact... I'm trying to think. No, I guess it would have been just after because MSU faced Bucknell in 2018. Wow, your memory is amazing. In the tournament. And they beat, that was 
before they beat before they lost to Syracuse, right. they beat Bucknell. Yeah, yeah. So that was that would have been before this kid got to Bucknell. But yeah, that's been a very steady program. And so he was an effective player there. So I think, you know, he and Jalen Thomas are primarily sharing that five spot. But again, both of those guys can give them legit rim protection. I mean, having a seven one guy is a big, you know, that you can see how Mata has built this team to try to at least physically be able to hang in there in the big East. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when he's playing UConn or Villanova or any of these teams, you need some bigger bodies and he's got them. He's got you know? plenty. Now, we'll see yeah. how good they are. We'll see how good they are, but um, there's reason to think that they can, their interior game can be okay. Next is six foot three sophomore transfer from St. Francis. Landon Moore, uh, he was a part of the uh, NEC all-rookie team last year, and so far this year he's averaging a little over six points a game on 39, 46, and 44 shooting. Yeah, I don't expect the deep shooting numbers to stay quite that elevated, but look, there's a reason why he was on the uh, the all-newcomer team and why he's in Butler's rotation because Thad knew they needed some more firepower there, even if it's coming off the bench. And he'll be an important guy um, probably all year long. And next is Finley Bizjak, a six foot four freshman from Texas, averaging uh, 4.3 points a game on a blistering 29, 10, and 50 shooting uh, numbers in 21 minutes a game. So he was a decent recruit uh, for, for Butler see where they were and he's just what just around the top 100 in in ESPN's ranking not consensus but still yeah. um, good player that's an important and that's an important sign you know uh, I don't think uh, we'll see how it goes but I, I would tend to think that Thad Mata at the very least would like more of a mix of guys he's recruiting out of high school and developing and then you supplement that with guys from the portal i'd be surprised if his mo was i just want to reinvent the wheel every year i I, maybe i'll be wrong but that's my hunch and so getting a guy out of texas by the way not normal butler recruiting territory that was a you know, we'll say at the very least a borderline top 100 guy. That's important. He hasn't shot the ball well at all thus far, but he's playing 21 minutes a game. So that tells you something about how they view him. And finally, Bowden Kopke, six foot 11, 260 pound freshman, averaging 11 minutes a game, 3.7 points a game, and four rebounds a game. Yeah, another big body. And they're somehow finding, you know, I think it's <laughs> the three headed monster thus far at the center we'll see i mean when you add them all up all three of those guys it adds up to about 40 minutes we'll see if that continues but this is a kid they got out of minnesota and they feel good about his potential down the road he's the biggest of them from a weight perspective yeah, he's huge um but it will it will again it will be interesting to see how the minutes evolve and because we haven't seen butler play anybody with a pulse yet really um <laughs> We don't know yet for sure if that's going to be how it goes or if it will eventually move to more of the two veterans sharing that spot. We'll just have to see. But for now, he's got a 10-man rotation, and this kid's been in it. I I would think he wants to give him a chance because, again, I don't believe that 
Thad Mata wants to have a program that just, you know, is churning every year. I think he would like to have multi-year guys. And so to have two true freshmen in his rotation is a potential benefit to him as he builds this thing. Yeah, and you imagine too, in the big East, you're not, you're a little bit less susceptible to transfers out of your, out of, off your team you know, with the assumption that they're playing. And so, you know, so I think that's, right. you're more likely right. to keep those guys around for the four years. So let's talk about the five keys to the game brought to you by nudge printing. Nudge printing is run by Gabe and Brittany. They are Spartan alums. They run everything out of Portland, Michigan. So it's all Michigan made products high quality apparel. Uh, you can get super soft t-shirts and long sleeve t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, whatever you need, all kinds of cool Spartan uh, vintage logos, current logos, whatever you want. It's really, Nudge has it all. Great stuff just to toss on, head to the bar, go to the restaurant, go out to eat or something like that. Tailgating, whatever you might need. Fantastic stuff. Free shipping and orders that are decent size. And uh, you get 20% off your order if you type in Final Four on your order. And that's at the Nudge Printing at nudgeprinting.com. They print all our stuff. So if you want our logo gear with our new logo, you can go over to, uh, actually the easiest way to find it is our collection is just go to the Final Four is on the schedule.com slash merchandise. And there you can find ways to order t-shirts or hoodies. Uh, they're really cool green. I wore them last year uh, shooting free throws at halftime. All right. So five keys to the game. Number one, get the offense humming. So we saw that in the second half, not so much the first half against Duke, but, you know, can you do that for a little bit, you know, sustain it for more than just like small bursts? I think the, the last two games, Michigan State was not buried coming out of the shoot, but that was largely down to their defense. The offense wasn't good against either Southern Indiana or Duke. And so the next step is that they come into the game from the jump more efficient and effective offensively. And that means in general, I think more penetration from the guards, better man movement, better ball movement, better screening. You do enough of those things. <clears throat> shots are going to fall. Yeah. Well, and then go to second key to the game on the boards. So Butler has quite a bit of size, although we saw in the starting lineup, their biggest player is 6'9", but they'd have a lot of size in the bench. Uh, they're, but they're having a lot of trouble rebounding. Michigan State done okay on the boards. They looked okay, especially offensively on the boards against Duke, and decent defensively. And so, you know, this is a spot where we th we have every reason to think that they're, they're going to be better. They've already shown signs they're better, but I think they can be a lot better than they have even been to this point and so, you know, can you exploit that with Butler and get a couple extra chances and prevent Butler from getting second chances? Yeah, their their offensive rebounding rate is lower than I would have expected, um, mostly due to the Southern Indiana performance, because mm -hmm. um, they were pretty good against um, against James Madison and even against yeah, Duke. They were they were okay. Yeah, it's that's not you know if that was your season number. You would take sure. that. That would be that would be solid. That wouldn't be it wouldn't be anything spectacular by Michigan State historical standards, but it would represent real improvement over last season's debacle in that area. <laughs> so look, I think it's if if you're talking about a team that is struggling to score, 
one way you help solve that in terms of point production is you get on the offensive glass and you score some second chance points. And we saw Michigan State do a little of that against Duke. And they they tended to come at timely moments where they really needed a bucket. You know, Jaden Akins had a couple of them. That's a good sign. Um, you know, they they did they did some things in that area. They got a they got a three off an offensive rebound. Mm-hmm. Um I can't remember who it got swung to. Maybe it was to Jaden also. It was a first half Carson Cooper offensive rebound that he secured and the ball went around the horn, found Jaden, and he nailed the three. Um, Michigan State needs to do more of that. And at least statistically thus far, it's the one thing Butler has not done well in these tomato can games (laughs) is they haven't rebounded well at either end. So you, based on that, you would think there might be an opportunity, but it's a little early to call things a trend. So we'll see. Yeah, we're not quite at the trend stage. We're still with the uh, coincidence no. stage right now. Uh, and then, right. just a as an example, you just, last season Michigan State shot a twenty or sorry, shot. They had a twenty eight percent offensive rebounding percentage. So that just shows you how poor the thirty five would be a huge yeah, step. Thirty five would be a yeah. huge improvement. All right, so significant. No, the number three yeah. key of the game, he's back, AJ. So, I mean, can he? Yeah. Can he uh, build on what he what he looked better last game for the right? I mean. Uh, it's funny. I, I will from as, as listeners know, I've been a critic of AJ's for quite a bit of his career. I also think that I've been pretty fair and when he's played well, I've said so. And I understand how important he is to this team, which is an acknowledgement that, yeah, this guy is capable of doing some very, very good things. Um, I don't think any of that's changed. I think he's he's not their best player, but he's their most important player. And if you want, it, it, there are a number of things going on with Michigan State right now. But if you if you asked me to point to one big thing, the one most important thing as to why MSU has been disappointing thus far, it's AJ Hogart. Now, all that said, judging by some of the stuff I saw on social media. <laughs> And on the message boards yesterday after the Duke game, I feel like I felt like I've been ahead of a lot of the fan base in AJ criticism. And I feel like maybe I'm a little bit ahead. I hope I'm ahead in terms of looking at the game he played yesterday and actually being okay with it. It wasn't brilliant. When you go one for eight from the floor, um, when you have a couple of defensive lapses as he had in the second half, you can't say, well, that was a great game, but he had eight assists to two turnovers. And it is not a coincidence that when he started playing and facilitating better in the second half, Michigan state's offense was on the uptick. Now, some of that was attributable to Tyson Walker, individual brilliance, but not all of it. A.J. had a hand in that, too, and A.J. even had a hand in some of what Tyson was able to do. So I want to I, – I felt there were – and his defense, you could talk about a couple of blown moments in the second half, but the first 10 minutes in particular, he was elite oh, defensively. Yeah. So he is. he showed signs for the first time this year, and I'm including the exhibition games – 
this is the first time this year that I looked at AJ's overall floor game and felt, okay, I'm seeing signs of who he needs to be for this team. There were pot, real um, tangible positives about the way he played. Can he build on that? Because the Duke performance was just showing some positive signs. It didn't mean he was anywhere close to, to arriving. You know, we know what arrival arrival for AJ looks like the way he did in the NCAA tournament or at times in the second half of big 10 play last year. That's what arriving looks like for him. So he's nowhere close to that yet, but can he build on that Duke game on the positives, start sanding the rough edges off some of the negatives and get back to where they need him to be. He apparently said to Izzo in the locker room after the game, if I don't play better than this, bench me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's at least that's at least saying the right thing. That's at least verbalizing that you want to and expect to be held accountable, which is progress, I guess. But I, I, at this point, I'm just more concerned with what shows up on the actual court because we're we're past the my bad phase. Yeah, you're senior, you know? right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's a senior. Fourth key to the game, transition. So Michigan State, I mean, obviously, transition is key. This is something that we've expected a lot more of this season. We've seen some more, but I think not probably as much as either of us expected. Uh, and then, you know, Butler seems to be playing fast, but we'll see if Michigan State can exploit them. And with looking at their, especially some of their size, you think, boy, there's some might be some opportunities here. I hope so. I mean, Thad Mata certainly knows what the Michigan State transition game looks like. Yeah. And I'm sure he will be harping and working with his team to prioritize floor balance, especially since they're not a good offensive rebounding team anyway. Yeah. So they will try, but Michigan state has got to still be insistent and push. And I thought at times against Duke, they did that. And then at other times I didn't think they did mm -hmm. that, that that needs to be more consistent. And it's, it's on those point guards above and beyond anybody else, but it's also on, you know, bigs have got to rim run Wayne's have got to get out and, and, um, you know, and run those lanes, you know, the, all that stuff's got to happen, but it starts with the point guards really being insistent and pushing. I just think again, when you're struggling shooting the ball, well, you got to do anything. What are the, what are the two ways you can, Keep your off well three ways. You can keep your offense humming if you're not hitting jumpers. You can get to the foul line. You can get second chances via offensive rebounds. You can get in transition. Yep. So they they really only did one of those things okay against Duke, and that was second chance points. They outscored Duke in transition, but it was only eleven to one. Yeah, it wasn't which fast expect, break yeah. point. So it didn't big edge, but not enough points to really matter in the aggregate, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, transition is part of what's got to happen. All right. The fifth key to the game, which you sort of hinted at before attack Pierre, uh, we know him well, we know what yeah. his limitations and it, from, you know, your two minutes of scouting and looking what he looks like, <laughs> he looks the same as he before. And so our expectation is he's probably the same limitations that he had when he was at Michigan state. I don't think there's reason to believe that the conditioning is much different. I don't see it visually. I didn't see evidence of that. So it's not like there are guys, you know, we saw AJ Hogard look thinner. So, right. 
uh, Hunter Dickinson looks like he's in better shape. He looks like he's in the best shape of his college career right now at Kansas. That's noticeable to me visually. I don't, I didn't see that with Pierre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you know, Thad's always been, and again, I haven't seen them play. Thad had always been a man to man guy. I would kind of be surprised if they were leaning on a lot of zone to hide guys. That doesn't seem to be Thad's historic MO, but maybe that's going on some. I don't know. But if, if Pierre is out there playing somebody man to man, I don't really care who it is. They got to look to go at him. If, if they try to go some minutes with him guarding Jaden Akins, Jaden Akins needs to be in attack mode and MSU needs to be swinging the ball to him every possession. Um, if he's guarding Malik Call, Malik has got to look to take him in the post because he's a little bigger than than Pierre, and I think he can take him down there. Just in general, anybody guarding Pierre, MSU has got to be looking to attack him. I'm trying to. And we'll see where it goes. I'm trying to think of someone he he can like effectively guard, and I I feel like you know if he tries to guard AJ or how I mean, he's going to really struggle against maybe anyone. maybe maybe. Um, maybe Cohen Carr or um, Xavier Booker because those guys aren't, you know, in, in Xavier's uh, case, he's just not comfortable enough offensively to where he's going to, you know, he's likely to do a lot of damage, although maybe a few minutes against Pierre would get him on track in Cohen's case. You know, you want somebody who can either, you know, do something, to attack Pierre. So you want somebody who has can go off the dribble against him and abuse him there, or somebody who could take him on the blocks and do damage. Cohen right now is kind of an opportunistic scorer. Yeah. So he's mostly going to be a guy that, okay, they get him on a lob, they get him in transition. He gets a put back. That's primarily how he's going to score. So they might, I would not be surprised if they kind of look for opportunities to play Pierre by guarding somebody like Cohen Carr. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. It'll be an interesting game. And this is certainly no cupcake. And this is, and as you pointed out, it would have been kind of nice getting a get right game before you have another tough game, but you know, schedule is what it is. It's not the, not the hardest team that you could probably play. Exactly. And, and I, I, you know, I do believe that that's just circumstance, but on the other hand, you get a, you get a win against Butler and that, that re- and then you got almost a week, you got six days, until you see Arizona. So if they can get this one and play well, that's the biggest yeah. thing. Play well. Um, then I think you can start to feel some of those green shoots are popping up. <laughs> well, well, this has uh, gone a little bit long, so we're going to, I think, leave it there because I don't think we have much more to add. We'll talk to everyone after the Butler game. Again, reminder to check out Nudge Printing at nudgeprinting.com. Or the Brothers of Just Two Gutters. You can find contact information for Kurt and Greg if you're in the Metro Detroit or the Grand Rapids area uh, in the podcast player below or on our website at thefinalforce.theschedule.com. Just look in the episode description. You can find contact information for both those gentlemen. Uh, also, a little of note, we're going to be doing a college campus tour. I have do a college tour with my son. He's going to be checking things out before the game. So we'll do that on Friday evening beforehand. So we'll get to see a little bit of the dorms. I don't know if we get to eat, go to eat dorm food or something like that, but we'll see what goes on. So anyways, uh, we'll talk to you guys afterwards. Until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green.